0: There's a lot of things that we human beings do that are very similar to what all other terrestrial organisms do. Lots and lots of things obviously. We respire, we respond to pain or stimulus, we have a metabolism etc etc whatever, it's, that doesn't really matter anyway. What does matter is that for the purposes of this, I'm not saying respiration doesn't matter, but for the purposes of this discussion, there's something that we human beings do, that other creatures or plants or fungi don't seem to do, and that is we can explain that by saying that what we do is that we project a positive reality in front of us. So that as we walk around the place, metaphorically speaking, we're walking within the positive reality bubble that we ourselves have projected. Now this from one way of looking at it is the it's the advantage that we humanoids have, because we've learned to project a positive reality. So it's our clever trick. And it's also our downfall. So it's a clever trick and it's a downfall. So it'd be interesting to kind of go into this a bit more. Now the reason it's a clever trick is fairly straightforward to explain. What we're actually doing with this positive reality is that we're modeling the world and running that model, running that simulation so we know what to expect from the actual real world and so we can um, optimize our behavior and we don't have to um, rely on making up our minds On what to do at the time, and we don't have to rely on working out what's going on at the time, because we've already got this model, this simulation running. So if we see a brightly striped snake, we can predict the behavior of this snake and we can predict what's going to happen to us if it bites us, because we know we might die or lose a limb. So we avoid the the, the multicolored snake. That's a very crude example, but the idea is self-explanatory. There's something about this business whereby we get the hang of what the world is and then run our own simulation, which we superimpose on the world just as if we have got some kind of VR glasses on or something like that, or a headset. There's something about it which you probably wouldn't expect. Now this it it really does sound like a great thing, a really helpful thing, but there is something about it that we we don't get. And what it is is that when we're running a simulation the only way that a simulation can be run is if we assume we know everything about the situation that we're modeling and when I say that we assume we know I don't mean that we absolutely know everything that happens or that will happen but just that we know the parameters so if you toss a coin I don't have superhuman powers I don't know if it's gonna land head or tails that's still unknown but what I do know is that it's going to be heads or tails. So it's it's a little surprise, it's like, oh, it's heads. But it's not a big surprise because, sure, what else was it going to be? It's either that or tails, you know, so it's not a huge, huge surprise. It's not a radical surprise. So what we're talking about here, within the realm of the simulation, is trivial surprise, trivial uncertainty. So there's lots and lots of trivial uncertainty, but trivial uncertainty exists within boxes. It exists within the known. So no matter which way it swings, it's never going to challenge the known because it exists within boxes within the known. And so it always, whether it becomes heads or whether it becomes tails, both of those agree with the assumptions that have been made in creating that simulation. Neither of them fundamentally challenge our way of seeing the world, they can't do. Trivial uncertainty, no matter how it pans out in the end, can never ever challenge the assumptions that our way of looking at the world is based on. Radical uncertainty, on the other hand, not only can challenge it, it does challenge it. And it challenges it in a way which is fatal. It's a fatal challenge, invariably a fatal challenge. It's a fatal error. And the reason it's a fatal error is because reality is always a fatal error for the simulation. Bring reality in and there can be no... the, the, the integrity of the game we're playing, the integrity of the simulation is ruptured. The whole thing goes Um It goes to pieces, it falls apart on the spot. And this is the thing that we may not be or probably don't have that much awareness of why this should be the case, why radical uncertainty can't ever be allowed. But the answer is very simple. We simply cannot program for radical uncertainty. We haven't got any parameters at all, there's no parameters. The field is too wide. So we could program for all sorts of situations where this could happen or that could happen or even 10,000 different things could possibly happen. But we know what they all are so we can write that into the program. The one thing we can't do is write radical uncertainty into the program because We don't know what what we're writing, Um, how the hell can we do it? We're kind of stuck there, we could just draw a big question mark if we wanted and say well anything could happen at this point, anything at all, not just things I know about, things that I would never have dreamed of, things that I simply do not know about, that could happen too. But it's all very well saying that, because within a simulation you have to program everything, you can't actually leave a gap because we don't know how to program a gap. The only thing we can do is turn the simulation off and then there's a gap. But we didn't program that gap. The gap is what happens when we actually disable the simulation. So that brings us to the next point. And the next point is, well, why don't we just do that then? Why don't we just turn the simulation off if we have to, or if we want to open our minds a bit? Two things that are not included within that set of possibilities that are defined within the within the program within the system, within the game. Why do we do that? And we could do it very very easily. It's just a matter of not projecting the positive space. A positive means everything in it is defined, everything in it is asserted. That all simulations have to be positive. Because If there is a simulation, that means that we have defined it in advance. And not only, and I apologize for repeating myself, not only have we defined it in advance, but we defined absolutely every little last bit about this world. We haven't left any gaps because we can't leave any gaps. So that's what a positive space is, that's what a positive world is. It's a world that's been completely defined. And there's no gaps in it, there's no incongruities in it, no major incongruities, no radical ones, and there's no, well, there's no discontinuities. Everything joins up logically with everything else, and then when you follow it through, it comes right back to the beginning again. There are no discontinuities, gaps. So, one reason. That we can't, um, that we have problems with the positive projection, is that we can never encounter anything that we don't already imagine that we know about. But But the other thing is that we get so used to the simulation, so habituated to it, that anything that threatens the integrity of it, anything that challenges it, elicits a fear response in us because we don't know what that big unknown is. And we've become so addicted, so habituated, so adapted to the positive world where everything is, at least in principle, known. And <clears throat> that gives a great feeling of safety in an ontological sense. We it, it could still be killed or all sorts of bad things could still happen to us, <clears throat> but we'd be able to comprehend them. So it wouldn't be ontologically challenging, it would just be challenging in a physical way. So it's safe in that sense it's safe in the sense that nothing can ever happen that I don't already know about. And funnily enough, we might think biological safety is biological security is our number one goal, and it, it is, but maybe not number one because there is this other type of security, which is ontological security, as it is called, and that basically has to do with us believing that we're in a world or a universe where everything can be explained. And how familiar that line is to us, how often have we heard that? It can all be explained. Yes, don't worry about that, that's just uh, what uh, we can explain that. Uh, another thing, I can explain that it can all be explained. We're talking about the world of the, uh, the rational world, the world of the rationalist, and we've been in the grip of rationalism as a predominant um philosophy if you can actually call it a philosophy I don't maybe you can't actually it's too it's too redundant to be called a philosophy but it's more like a strategy to it's a strategy to avoid radical uncertainty the belief that everything can be logically explained just as long as we we may not be able to explain it now today but we'll explain it tomorrow or in another 100 years or something when we get smarter so we don't understand what life is but we figure we're pretty much on the way of explaining it we don't understand why the universe is there or maybe how it got to be there but again we're on the we're on the way to explain it we pretty much think that we're getting to the point where we can explain all that and then we could also bring in consciousness and why not why not bring in consciousness and um Yes, we don't understand it. We can't explain it in terms of little diagrams or formulae or whatever crap. But we're trying very hard and we know that we're smart. So we kind of think, yeah, we'll get there in the end. We explained else, didn't we? So we'll explain consciousness before very long. So that's that's consciousness research for you. Now, clearly, the one thing that we didn't um, expect or anticipate or imagine is that Supposing consciousness actually turns out to be a gap, in the sense that we can't simulate it, we can't program anything to be conscious, and we can't create consciousness, and we can't explain it or subject it to um, the type of analysis that we can subject everything else in the positive reality to. In other words, um, as I just said, supposing consciousness was a gap of discontinuity and it didn't belong in our simulation at all, which explains why we can't simulate it, which explains why it's bafflingly incomprehensible to us. Now we would very very much like to believe that this isn't the case because that stumps us, stumps us big time. Can't explain consciousness away in that case from the point of view of, ration, of the, the rational endeavour to explain the universe away or to explain life, the universe and everything else away, that's a disaster. That is a bad thing, a really bad thing. Oh my god, I suppose we can't explain it away. But that's okay. I mean we're not worried about that because we're pretty much convinced we will be able to. We'll be able to simulate it within, within the positive um, simulation of reality. Because as far as we're concerned consciousness has got to be a positive phenomenon, i.e. one that can be completely defined, because that's all we're capable of relating to. And that's all we're capable of relating to because we are habituated to, addicted to, adapted to the positive reality. And a positive reality is a reality where everything can be explained, defined or known. And once we're adapted to that, the idea that there might be anything that we can't explain or define or know is incomprehensible to us. It's just like we what? We just what? there's no way we'll get it. We'll sit there just saying what? Over and over again. We cannot get that because we're adapted to our own device. We're adapted to the positive reality that we project in front of ourselves. You can think of us as being kind of like miners with a helmet on and the light. And instead of projecting light so we can see in the mine, we're projecting positive space. And we're not just projecting in front of it, because we're walking into it and we are in it the whole time. So the, the downside of that becomes more apparent when we go into it a little bit more. And the downside to it is that we have fundamentally divorced ourselves from reality. (laughs) And if that isn't a downside well I don't know what it is. It's got to be a downside hasn't it? We've fundamentally divorced ourselves, alienated ourselves from unconditioned reality. Unconditioned meaning we didn't make it ourselves, we didn't program it ourselves. It's not positive. It's not positive, it's negative. It's undefined, unstated. It hasn't been stated, it doesn't mean it's not there. It just hasn't had a little line drawn around it with a pencil and a little arrow saying this is this and that which is what the, what the thinking does. It's kind of um draws little lines around everything and labels them. When you rub out the lines, it doesn't mean nothing is there because the negative reality is there. In a negative way, it's kind of an absence because it's a negative reality. But it's not an absence; it's an it's an absence. It is an absence, but it's an absence of the known. It's an absence of the knowable. It's an absence of the positive reality bubble that we keep projecting. So there's the um, the, the simplest way of talking about the disadvantage to say that we are now fundamentally alienated from, not only isolated from or insulated from, but alienated from reality, as it actually is all by itself, which is the only way reality can be reality without being a plaything of the thinking mind. We're not only divorced from it or separated from it we are alienated from it because if even a little bit of it gets through and then you get a manifestation of radical uncertainty within the simulation that immediately banjaxes everything it's like um, cyanide banjaxes um, metabolism it um, thoroughly screws up the mitochondria. No cyanide, they don't like it, the mitochondria do not like cyanide. And in the same way the simulation does not like radical uncertainty, it's uh, deadly poison. And to go back a bit to what I was saying earlier, it's not just that we can't model it or think what it is or say anything about it at all, it's actually that once it's there That means we are compelled, or we cannot help, um, seeing everything in the light of this radical uncertainty. So the radical uncertainty is radically uncertain in itself, for sure. It's got to be. That goes without saying, so I shouldn't have said it. But not only that, not only is it radically uncertain in itself, it throws a new light on all the things that we were certain about, because the fabric of positive um, space is such that it only means anything at all as long as we are convinced that there's nothing out there that we can't explain. If there is something out there that we can't, we absolutely can't explain, and never will be able to explain, because it's not positive. Then this puts a different perspective on things, because. We can no longer believe in the positive world because we know there's a bigger world out there, a negative world, and that dwarfs the positive world. It causes it to dwindle into a little speck of dust. It becomes insignificant. It's just a construct. So another way of putting that is to say, if we want to live in the construct as if it is not a construct, there must be no evidence of an unconstructed world, a formless world, an unmade world like a bed that you haven't made hasn't been manufactured. There can't be any evidence because as soon as we know that we see the construct to be a construct and as soon as we see the construct to be a construct that takes the good out of it because it's like it's only a construct. And that of course is the same as saying that when we play a game we must not be aware that I'm playing a game because it takes the fun out of it. Like if I'm playing game of football and I realize this is just a stupid game. We're not supposed to think that, we're supposed to think it's important, I've got to win, my team's got to win, if we we lose that's really really bad and that's because we don't see the game to be a game. We've lost our freedom to see that and that's the prerequisite for playing games. So in the same way if we are to get a feeling of ontological security from the projected positive space, we must not know that it is a projected positive space. We absolutely must not know that. So the projected positive space is like God in the Old Testament, who is a jealous God, because he says, There shall be no other God but me. There shall be no idols. Idols kind of is like a a disparaging way of talking about anything that isn't Jehovah really. There can't be any other gods and if you pretend there is that's just an idol. And you're stupid to believe in it and what's more God will punish you. Because the Lord your God is a jealous God. So really that can be taken as a metaphor for positive space. that might seem a bit far-fetched because people could easily at this point step in and say that's much too far-fetched to be called a metaphor. How can you relate positive space to the God in the Old Testament? But of course you can because that is the whole Gnostic myth in a nutshell. The Gnostic myth being that the positive God who created the universe is actually, and, and claims to be the only God, the real God, is a trickster who, who, who created a false universe or a construct in order to trap us within it. And that's the myth, which clearly has huge relevance um, to psychology. If we're willing to extend the boundaries of what we consider psychology to be to um, Gnosticism. Okay, thanks for watching.